Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Life is really precious and uh, we will we will come to an end. The invitation for clients to see that you don't have forever to make a change um, is really important. Like, let's get the meaning in the room. You know, if you had 1,500 weeks left in your life, feed up, feed up. And so uh, I want to convey to my clients in some way that, yes, it's painful, but it's also got lots of joy and love and opportunities for connection, but not another minute of doubting and wondering and not taking risks. That was Dr. Robin Walzer on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists committed to cutting-edge, integrative, and evidence-based strategies for living well. On this podcast, we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. I am Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. We hope this podcast offers you ideas for how to live a full and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We hope that you'll join Debbie and Diana on Saturday, October 19th at Goodland Organics Farm in Goleta, California, near Santa Barbara. We're doing a fall reset and restore wellness retreat, which is going to include some psychology workshops, yoga, time outdoors in nature, exploring the coffee farm, and it's going to be a lovely day. That's Saturday, October 19th, and you can find out more and register at drdianahill.com. We hope to see you there. So for this episode, I had the opportunity to talk to a true master clinician, Robin Walzer. You know, therapy is really grounded in science, but it's the heart and the human element that we bring into it that really makes it come alive. And Robin Walzer wrote a book called The Heart of Act, which we talk about, and we really dive into the personal element of being a therapist and doing therapy. And sadly, two days after I recorded this interview with Robin, I read a New York Times article about how all these tech workers in Silicon Valley are really anxious and depressed right now, and so they're getting therapy. And they've discovered that this is an area where they're going to try to make an app out of therapy. They're going to tech it up and turn it into this sort of thing that you do online on a screen. What do you think about that, Diana? Well, of course we are. We're doing that with everything, right? So we try and take kale and distill it into a pill that then we can take. But there's something that gets lost in that. And I think in this episode, what really rose to the surface and talking with Dr. Walzer was 
how the humanness is so much part of the therapy. Everything from actually the mistakes that you make in therapy are can be the very essence of what gets you closer to your client. And there's been so many times where I've screwed up and then I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm worried about it. I'm thinking about my client. And then actually the repair that happens the next session, or sometimes I call them in between because I can't tolerate <laughs> waiting till the next session. Actually that repair opens the door for understanding so much more about our relationship and about them. And then also just modeling this, this beautiful you know, experience of repairing with someone. And I don't know if an app can do that. I think that the relationship is so essential to therapy that it's just hard to imagine capturing that over a screen in any way. I love, I love, love, love uh, when you, the two of you talk about the example of missing it with a client and Robin uses some self-disclosure to, to talk about her experience. And then you talk about your experience. And of course, Debbie, I'm like dying to know actually what you did that missed it with a client, but we can talk about that up the air. And it, it makes me think about, I was actually just teaching um, yoga with my kids, this, with the kids at my school, my kid's school. And I was teaching them crow pose. And for years, I've never been able to do crow, po- crow pose. That's the one where you put your, your, your knees on your elbows. It's a balancing pose. And I haven't been able to do it for years until a yoga teacher, teacher said, oh, I can totally see what you're doing wrong. You're not willing to fall on your face. <laughs> you have to put your whole body face forward as if you're going to fall on your head in order to get yourself to balance up your, your body weight up on your, on your elbows. And it's such a good metaphor for therapy. Like we've got to be willing to fall on our face in order to make any kind of movement. Well, that's such a, that is a perfect metaphor because I think as for myself, as I get more experienced with therapy, I'm a better therapist than, now than I was 10 years ago. And I think I'm more willing to take risks. Mm-hmm. For me, I think I have to bring myself into the room and just be real. You know, I'm, I'm not losing the grounding in the science and the theory, but the more I bring myself in, and sometimes that means I just have to sort of take a risk. I'm not going to be a picture of a therapist in a movie. I'm going to be me. But that takes a little bit, to me, that's slightly riskier. Well, there's also this fine line of taking the risk. So something like self-disclosure is a perfect example of it. There's this fine line of taking a risk, but you also, if you're doing crow pose, you want to do like face forward onto a nice padding, like put a blanket down or something, make it, make it a risk. That's not going to do harm because like in therapy, we could actually take some risk that could harm people. And I know you and I have talked about self-disclosure and act and times when we've disclosed things that maybe it wasn't so helpful. We went too far and it became sort of this self-indulgent, like, let me tell you about (laughs) my life. And then so many times I've had clients come into my therapy office telling me about their really bad past therapy experiences where their therapist was quite indulgent with their self-disclosure. Yeah. I think one example I was thinking of, because Robin talks about this and sometimes she's more direct maybe than she used to be, or, you know, she's bringing certain, um, she, she might be more assertive. Mm -hmm. For me, one thing I've noticed is that I'm more likely to use humor than I used to be, which sometimes feels a little risky too, because therapy is serious business and it's supposed to be serious. But sometimes that almost starts to feel like a persona. And my husband will sometimes say, stop using your therapist voice on me because I think there's this sort of serious therapist voice that has a neutral face. And it's like, sometimes that's not very genuine. And so it can feel 
outside the box a little bit to be a little bit more playful, but it can actually be, it can just feel a little bit more real. Speaking of playful, one of the things that I really appreciated about the episode was when Robin talked about breaking rules. And that's something that also has grown with experience as a therapist. I'm way more willing to break rules than I was when I was a beginning therapist. Like what, Diana? You oh, will break breaking. your <laughs> I love breaking. You yeah. know, one of my the one of the biggest rules that I that I break as a therapist is is this social rule around the therapist is supposed to sit in one spot and the client is supposed to sit across from them. And I find it to be incredibly beneficial to to mix that up. Sometimes I'll go and sit next to my client on the on the couch next to them. And like get in there on a worksheet and be like, let's look at this together. Sometimes I'll be sitting in my, in my chair and I'll be like, I'm not, I feel like they're pulling for me to solve this problem. And I'll be like, hold the phone, switch spots, get in my chair because <laughs> you need your inner therapist on this one. So we'll do a switch. And then the other rule is that, you know, you know, me and I get my cushions out and I sit on the floor. And sometimes I'll do that mid-session. I'll, I'll check in with my body and, and really realize that I need to sit on the floor here. And I'll say, you know, hold on a second. I'm going to grab those cushions and sit on the floor because I, I need to take care of myself around this. That is, you know, when I was a beginning therapist, I would just suffer through a session if I had a back pain issue or whatever. But now I'm much more okay with that. It's funny, these little moves, you know, with the Kleenex box is a thing, right? Some people think, never hand the client the Kleenex box because that's a sign that you want them to stop crying. And some people say, well, it's an act of compassion. Hand them the Kleenex box. And I just read that new book, The Memoir of a Therapist that just came out. Maybe you should talk to someone. And she describes in detail his seating arrangement, which is sort of unusual. And then this moment when he tosses her the Kleenex box and how much (laughs) you would never think of that, of your therapist doing that, but it's sort of yeah, throws her off her game. And I just, I, I think it's funny because we have this vision of what it's supposed to look like, but yeah. sometimes it's re- it really is okay to shake it up. It's okay to shake up. And I remember, remember we went to that Russell Colts workshop and he talked about how therapy starts in the waiting room, that the, that the interactions that you have, even just as the clients coming into your space, all, all do matter. They all do matter. And if we're, if they're so rule governed, then we're not tending to maybe with this client, I do need to like demonstrate some flexibility in the room because that's an area that this client's working on. Right. And that those types of interactions or even how I, how I tend to the Kleenex box or the gla- offering the glass of water or the tea, those kind of things actually do matter. And if they're rule governed, we lose the function which is very much an act thing. It's all about function. And another thing that Robin talks about in this episode is sort of what the process is like for her, what she's sort of thinking about as she's doing therapy. Diana, what comes up in your mind as you're sitting with a client? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I was actually thinking about this. A lot of times act is, is the metaphor of a dance is often used in act. I know Steve Hayes Hayes talks about that when he's talking about pivoting. And I feel like it's very much dancing with a client, but dancing a dance that you feel not super comfortable in. So there's an element of, okay, tuning into my own body and what am I feeling? So definitely an interoceptive kind of process of what is this, the feelings that a client's eliciting in me? And then there's an element of the technique certainly there of, okay, what dance am I dancing here? What, you know, where, where are we inflexible? What moves do we need to practice more of? And then also the element of that we're, in, we're impacting each other. So noticing how my moves and my words impact the client and then how that shifts them and then how they impact me. So I'm kind of 
juggling all of those pieces at the same time. It's how I used to feel when I used to go swing dancing with my husband, who is, he's a really good swing dancer. And I was sort of a, a mediocre dancer. Oh, there's also the beat, like that pacing thing that, that, that Walzer talks about, which is so like, that's also something you kind of get a sense of over time as a therapist, pacing. Mm-hmm. Pacing. Yeah. Yes. What, what's your experience in your head? It, it varies a lot. I think you know, sometimes my mind is in problem solving mode and, or Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I'm human. Sometimes I get a little preoccupied or I start thinking in more of the mode of, okay, what are they telling me? What am I going to say? That kind of thing. That's, but that's not really when I'm at my best. What I've been working on and I think doing more effectively in recent years is just really showing up wholeheartedly. So I love that Robin talks about this heart of act, because I think if I, the more I can just sort of fully be there with the person and get into that experiential mode with them, the more it feels like I'm really doing good work. And I've never um, met an app with a heart yet. Not yet, but right. I think maybe that, we'll, we'll get one soon. Yeah. To be sitting here with this idea of bringing more heart into therapy. And then two days later, reading this article about making it digital to me, I just, it's not connecting there. I feel it's, it makes me very sad. Yeah, it's like nature pictures on your screensaver. Not quite the same as going to Yosemite and being in it. That's right. Yeah. So I, I I love this interview. I'm so it's just such an honor to have a master like Robin Walzer teaching us. And if you're a therapist, you know, drink it all up. And if you're not a therapist, you might get a little inside information about what's happening in your therapist's head. That's right. Enjoy. I'm here with Robin Walzer today. Hi, Robin. Hi, Debbie. How are you? I'm good. This is Robin's third time on the podcast. You're actually, Robin, you're tied with Steve Hayes for our most frequent guest. Thank you for coming back again. That's a nice distinction. Thank you. Yes, and you're in good company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Robin and I actually know each other and have known each other for many years. Robin created and leads the National Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, or ACT, training program for VA mental health clinicians. And I've worked kind of with and under her as a regional trainer and training consultant for many years. And I've been to many of her workshops, and we've even co-presented at some conferences. So I can attest to Robin's to Robin as a person bringing the heart of ACT into all of her training. She trains internationally and is really known for her, the quality and heart of her training. She just brings a genuine openness that is relevant to today's episode. Well, thank you. That's very kind. Yes. And she's the author of several ACT books, and we're here today to talk about her newest one, which is called The Heart of ACT, Developing a Flexible and Process-Based Practice Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. And I've been reading through this book, and it's a wonderful book for clinicians who are wanting to deepen their practice, their ACT practice, and just add more heart and soul to their work. And so I'm really delighted that you're here today, Robin. I think that the book has the feel of what it's like to be in your presence. It just has this open genuineness. So I'm really happy that it's going to be out there for folks and that you're here to talk to me about it today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm really glad to be here and uh, talk about the book. It was it was a work of um, both love and pain to write it because it required a lot of um, thinking about how do you communicate experiential work verbally through language. It was really hard. I'm sure it was. That sounds like a challenge. And I I feel like you did it with this book. 
And you reveal, I think, some of your own heart and personal elements of it. And I just imagine that that did take some courage to put yourself out there in this way. Yeah, definitely talking about some of my own experiences with learning ACT and supervising others in ACT and um, certainly had its uh, challenges. Like I would feel uh, self-conscious about people knowing these things about me. And so, but I just was, all right, let's go for it. And I put it in there anyway. And you also write about what it's like to be in the therapist seat wholeheartedly, which is something that we're going to talk about today. And I think that that's something that also requires a lot of openness. Yeah. Um, It requires a lot of um, being willing to sit with your own experience in the room as a client is sharing their pains and struggles with you. Absolutely. And speaking of the heart of Robin Walzer, your two hearts, your adorable little puppies are sitting there and they snore. So I just want to tell our listeners that they might hear an occasional sound and that that's Robin's sweet little doggies snoring by her feet. Yeah, it's not me. (laughs) (laughs) It's the doggies. (laughs) Thank you for clarifying. So I know that you care deeply about training and acceptance and commitment therapy and have trained a lot of clinicians who are brand new to ACT. What do you think are some of the biggest challenges that you see when you're working with new clinicians? You listen to their sessions, you work with them in workshops and consultation groups. What do you think is challenging in the beginning when people are are starting this? Well, I think this is happening throughout many different therapies, not just acceptance and commitment therapy, but when you're learning a new therapy, part of what you want to do is give me the, tell me, give me the instructions, tell me what to do. And uh, what happens is, is that you hear the instruction and you start following rules about how to implement the therapy. However, as a process-based therapy and integrating processes into something that's process-based, what can happen is the tools or the exercises and metaphors can be seen as implementing the therapy and you miss the richness and texture of actually doing a process-based therapy where you're weaving processes together inside of an interpersonal relationship. And so the struggle is, is that people oversimplify and they start using techniques rather than process, rather than focusing on how to be present, open, willing, and bringing those, weaving those processes in. And I've, I've struggled a little bit in terms of thinking about, is it good to start with techniques, but then, you know, sort of insist as if people are wanting to grow in the therapy to let let those all go and focus just on the six core processes of ACT or do you start more with the processes and then teach the techniques it's probably a um, empirical question uh, but it's challenging when you hear because therapists can get kind of stuck in the rule I need to do this metaphor I need to do this exercise and they could lose the client and not be responsive to what's happening to the client and not think, why am I doing this? And look at the function of the exercise or the function of the behavior that the 
client is bringing into the room. So it becomes non-responsive and kind of can become kind of cartoonish. But with newer therapists, like it's a struggle. So it's not that I want to set too high a bar. It's just really connecting with that the tools and techniques are not the therapy. It's a therapy that uses tools and techniques. It's not the therapy itself. Yeah. And I, I, I learned through that way. I started with more of the techniques and the theory. And I remember feeling this sense of, I, oh, there's a right way to do it. And I need to figure out the right way to do it. And I think I lost a little bit of myself in that. And I, I had to sort of loosen up over time. Um, and I think that's a common experience. In the end, it was okay. But I think I had to go through a period of trying to be the good act therapist where I was maybe that was actually probably not really helping me. Yeah, yeah. No, I I mean, I started with the protocol myself and just followed the protocol and memorized the metaphors, memorized the techniques. So I started in that space as well. But as I've really come to digest what's happening in the experiential presence, it becomes clear, it became clear to me across time. And as I listened to more and more sessions and did more training, that there's a place there where you can have high fidelity, but low competence, like you, because you're missing the richness and the responsiveness or the functional analysis is another way of saying it, of what's happening in the therapy room. Mm-hmm. Sort of the deeper, and, and that's something you really explore in your book. And I think in your book, you encourage people to move beyond just mere fidelity in the sense of checking all the right boxes and into something that looks more like truly mastering it, mastery of the therapy. What do you think are some ways clinicians learning ACT can become more effective in their practice and move in the direction of mastery? Well, let me just first mention the mastery term and speak to that for a minute. And I always feel a little bit uncomfortable around it because I see myself as still learning and I kind of want to call it mastery-ing <laughs> and add an I-N-G. New on. word. <laughs> New word so that people don't feel like I'm going to reach mastery, but I'm always in a process of mastery. I'm really glad you made that distinction because, yes, it's not that an end point they're going to get to, but it's more engaging in that process along the way that matters. Like I'm still learning and like going to the uh, ACBS and listening to what people are presenting and hearing new ways to presenting or thinking about different perspectives and ideas. I find myself and learning from my clients as I do interventions and like it feels very creative to me inside of that process. I might say though, as I do stay connected to the model and the theory. So it's bringing creativity to that and learning more that way than, you know, stepping outside and not being able to connect it to the the radical model. I mean, my, my best sort of recommendation for folks who would like to move into mastery in (laughs) saying it that way um, is to just keep attending uh, trainings to really look at your own process in how you're doing therapy. I, I say this right away in the book, and that's that I'm of the opinion that if you're going to do this well, you need to be implementing it in your own life and being open, aware, engaged, 
yourself is a way of doing that in the therapy room. And so bringing map some part of mastering it, it brings in, um, is about bringing it to your own world and life, um, approaching things from an open space, and then staying engaged in the learning process and not stopping at just the techniques. So if you're learning it and you say to a trainer, can you tell me a metaphor that I can use there? Or what's an exercise that I can implement with this kind of client? I'll go further and ask, why would I want to use that metaphor and that exercise? What would be the purpose of it? And what is it linked to in terms of the overall picture of what the client is wanting from therapy and what the two of you are trying to create? And how does that metaphor and exercise feed into a larger process and purpose rather than just what is, what's the thing that I can do to the client and then what's the next thing I can do to the client? You sort of feel that you're ticking the boxes, but not actually weaving a cloth. Oh, I love that metaphor. Yeah, it's not a, it's not so simple. It's like, oh, this client has this issue, push this button, boom. It is that that weaving process over time. And I think there's a certain level of wisdom that kind of comes into it that you have to really have that deeper understanding of the foundational what is the functional behavior? Yeah. And I that sometimes that's really challenging for folks, but it's not, you know, I did it and I'm, I don't claim to be like a genius or anything like it's totally doable. And uh, I think that it just means applying yourself. And I think it means pushing yourself a little bit too, but not in a, a way where it becomes aversive, but in a, in a way that like it, when it captures you, you feel like, yes, this is something I want to share. And I, I think values-based uh, living is relevant, important for all of us, even in the midst of great suffering. And so like bringing that into the therapy room is different than I'm going to um, do this metaphor today. And I think one of the struggles that we have as a community of acceptance and commitment therapists is that as the therapy has grown and become more well-known, the dissemination process has really grown too, right? There's people learning about ACT all over the world. And through that process, there's a diffusion of dissemination. So the further away you get from like the original sources, the more diffuse the therapy comes and the more techniques are easy to grab and to think that the technique is the therapy, uh, which that, I think that's where it's hard because you want to reach many people and therapists, but reminding people that are way out on the end of that um, learning process that there's a place to come back to and a foundational part of this that's important, not just like reading a book that gives you um, techniques and you're done. Right. That might be a starting place, but it's not the end point. Now, if you think about your own journey as a therapist over the last however many years, what are some ways that you feel that you've grown or, or developed that wisdom over time? How have you changed as a therapist over the years? 
Well, I think I'm more willing to take risks in therapy and to be more open and present to what it is that is happening for me in a responsive way. So self-disclosure, saying more about what I think is going on without hesitation, but always um, uh, growing compassion and, you know, staying with people in a compassionate way. But I, th I think I've become more willing to take risks as a therapist, but not risks that are functional, right? They're linked to what is happening for the client and how I'm conceptualizing the case. I was on a phone call this morning and my friend Meg McKelvey said this and I wrote it down because it seemed really relevant to our conversation. She said, this is not just my work. This is how I want to show up in the world. And you mentioned in your book and just said a few minutes ago that a big part of growing this wisdom is putting it into practice in your own life. Can you tell us a little bit about why that's important and how that's happened, maybe an example of how that's happened for you in your own personal journey. Yeah, so one thing that when you when you walk into the therapy room and you're doing therapy to fully keep in mind is that we're not medical professionals. This we're not putting a stethoscope on somebody and then you know handing them a, a medication. We're having an interaction. This is an interpersonal relationship that's unfolding in the room and that we're changing through the interpersonal process. And I think part of what can happen when you're thinking about doing therapy and some of what can happen inside of evidence-based psychotherapy is that there's sort of this idea, and ACT is an evidence-based psychotherapy, right? But there's this idea that you take an intervention and you apply it to the client. Almost like you would, you know, and I say this in the book, take salve and put it on a wound. But what happens there is like, who's putting the salve on? Who's delivering the therapy? Like there's a human being in the room helping another human being. And how I show up as a person in the room uh, is going to be important. Can I model openness, acceptance, conscientiousness, and awareness? Can I model values-based behavior in the room? Can I be present to my own experience and share in appropriate ways that are linked to what the client is saying parts of myself so that it's not a sterile process, but a, um, you and me are interacting as two human beings inside of a very painful places. And so uh, I think stepping into a place where you have heart in the room and you recognize your own humanness in there. I mean, therapy isn't about you. I understand that. And um, so I don't want to make it sound that way, but this is an interpersonal thing, not a, a, you know, a person over there who needs to receive this thing that you're going to put on top of them. We're going to do this through an exchange that's moving and changing. It's an alive movement and process-oriented experience. Mm -hmm. So for you to be able to do that, to sort of show up in the room fully with another human being who's suffering, you have to do the work yourself. Right. Yeah. 
So I'm going to, I'm going to go back to the question of, do you have an example of, of a way that you've done that in your life, Robin? Um, when I first uh, started, when my first workshop, my first act workshop, I can speak to something that happened there. Uh, Steve Hayes was the person who was leading the workshop and he led us through an experiential exercise that was bookended, right? Like he prepared us for it. He knew where we were, where we were heading. There was a purpose in it. And there was a time where I sort of saw myself as not really acceptable. Um, you know, my, my family life was an interesting experience, and I write some about it in the book. It wasn't always easy. And I got messages of not being lovable if I weren't, like, you know, thin and tall and beautiful or whatever uh, it is. And so I remember sort of feeling like I'm not quite like that person that you need to be in order to be a lovable human being. And inside of this experience that uh, I had led by Steve Hayes, I was really able to see, take perspective on a sense of me that was um, young and innocent and human and whole. And I just felt everything shift in that moment. And I was able to see that what I needed to do was relate to myself in a, in a broader way, that I was not just the things that my dad had said about me, or I wasn't just the things that I had in my history, that actually I was a whole experience in being. And that shift was pretty dramatic for me. And it's not to say that I don't suffer and struggle today. I still do. But it has changed the way I relate to that. And I find that I'm able to be more present to myself and not run away from that essence or child or whatever you want to call it that is the wholeness of me, is the observer, the the perspective, that sense of self that is more than just any single experience. Like when that clicked in for me, it made all the difference. That's a beautiful example. Thank you for sharing that. That's that's an example of the courage that you have to share that. I think had you not had that ability to observe that experience in that way, it would have been much harder for you to show up fully and openly as you went through, you know, your work and and the trainings that you do. I think we see the result of you doing that work anytime that you do a training. Oh, thank you. And the other other thing about it is now I can also look at others and see them that way too. Yes. Right? Like they are not the categories and labels and, um, you know, know, all these things that we do that are about, defining ourselves rigidly they are not those things either and that if you're a client in the room and you have the experience of this person is with me as a whole human being with all my history all my pains all my struggles all my loves all my joys and there's a fully open place here that creates a a different experience for clients Mm -hmm. absolutely 
And there can be the flip side of that, right? The times when we don't do that, even <laughs> after years. So <laughs> you're, you're honest in your book about that there are particular hooks that we all get into. There's times when we get, I think you call it captured by our own histories. Um, you give some examples of times when maybe frustration shows up or anger or something appears and it makes it very difficult. What does that look like for you sort of at, at its, when you handle it at its worst, your worst <laughs> response to it and, and sort of the best response? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I can, there's an, I can give an example of when a client was telling a story to me and I'll just switch this up a little bit, but um, uh, to protect the, to protect the confidentiality. Yeah. Is uh, I'll just change the, I'll change things around a little bit. And uh, she had um, conveyed a story to me where she reported that somebody had humiliated her and really needed me to validate how awful this experience was. And instead what I did was confirmed the, that what the person did, what if that person's right about you? And so I, I kind of missed something in the room where what they needed was me to be present to the pain of being humiliated. And what I did was connect with the person who did the humiliating. Mm. And I just missed it. By the end of the session, I had slightly recovered, but I felt distressed by the missing it. And I knew I had missed it, and I wasn't quite sure how to come back in a way. Like, I fumbled around for a while, and um, the interaction stayed with me for a very long time after it had happened. And uh, I haven't quite, um, like it still occurs to me from time to time, this miss. And if I could go back and do it differently, what would I do? Because both the conceptualization was, is that this, what this person had was talking about when they humiliated this other person was accurate in the difficulty that this person was having in their life. Um, like, could, could I have expanded myself to pull in both of those things at the same time and both validating and confronting? I probably, mm -hmm. I would, that's what I would do to make it different. That's a good example. I, I feel like I've done some similar version of that many times and you're left feeling, oh, that wasn't really very helpful or I didn't, that didn't go very well. What about when it's at its best, when you feel like that sort of something like that happens or shows up for you and you feel afterwards that, that you handled it really well? What does that look like? Well, so I do think the six core processes are right inside of managing it well. And partly what happens there is that I'm willing to be present to how I missed something or I didn't do something well in therapy and I'll bring it right in and say I want to share with you what I think is happening and if I think an apology is the right way to go I'll make an apology but if I think just an exploration is the right way to go I'll make an exploration and say you know what happened for you when I did this and this is what was happening for me and does it feel like other areas of your life and 
How is it? How, what's, how does it change, if at all, something that's going on between the two of us? So that you, we have an opportunity to look at what are we willing to feel? What was values inconsistent and how do we get values consistent again? Um, what were we afraid? Were we avoiding something? So you can bring the processes right into what happened and move back into a space where your relationship becomes even closer as you work through the difficulty of what happened in that moment. I have an example of that that happened to me recently, you know, in acceptance and commitment therapy, we, we think it's important to use, as you said, some element of self-disclosure thoughtfully to share our own, to be open and share some of our own vulnerabilities. Well, sometimes this can go a little wrong. So I, I, did a self-disclosure that was probably a little too personal. And I think my, what I was trying to do was to re- to build connection and also to sort of validate or normalize something that the client was talking about. And I tell this story and then I kind of get to the end of it and I had this realization is not helpful. It's feeling a little off, <laughs> self-indulgent, um, irrelevant. And, <laughs> and I think that um, I actually noticed it was really bugging me. And I just said to the client, you know what, I'm feeling some discomfort around that. I actually think that that was a mistake. And I'm just noticing that I'm kind of sitting with that feeling. I think the that actually was the disclosure itself was really not a good move, but doing that actually felt like a good move because I, I at least owned it. Yeah. Well, and just even in what you're sharing with me, you modeled noticing you modeled um, coming back to something important to you when you realized that it wasn't what you were intending or hoping for. And those are fantastic things, right? As the client can see that there's space to make a mistake or to not get it right. And then to then not run as a result, but to come back in and say, let's see what happened. And, um, you know, let's either apologize or look at it more closely you know, what was, yeah. what was I being pulled for or what was happening in the room? Like all of that is really good. I think therapeutic work. Well, thank you. Yeah. I can't say I always handle it that way <laughs> when that kind of thing happens. But. <laughs> um, so one, one practice that I'd like to be more deliberate about after reading your book, Robin, is this idea of a therapeutic intention that you set. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what that is? Yeah. Well, so one thing that I uh, hold in terms of thinking about the model is that the being sitting across from me is whole and a whole human being. Even if they're uh, having psychosis, if they're having depression, if they're having anxiety, that this is a whole being in front of me. And so I hold as a stance, as a chosen stance, that this person is whole. And I'm not going to treat them in a way that isn't such. I also hold the position that clients are capable of making change. And so this is an able person across from me. They are able to change their behavior in ways that are healthy, supportive, values-based. And so whole and capable is a stance that I take when I show up. And some people have asked me, well, are you fused with that? 
And my response is, I'm choosing it rather than I'm fusing with it. And so it, from that position, whole and capable, you've got the you know, self as context in front of you, self as being, and able to make change in ways that are values. And so when I, when I bring myself into the room, I have the intention of being fully present with a whole and capable human being. And so I want to bring in my uh, sense of what it is that I'm working on. I'm helping this person move towards a um, engaged and vital living. And that this person is, can do that. So my intention from the beginning is that this is not a, a diagnosis sitting in front of me. This is a human being sitting in front of me. I like that idea of making a choice around how you're going to, the stance you're going to take and how you're going to show up. Does that vary a little bit person to person given? So for instance, if a client that you find maybe difficult to just say something you find difficult to like, or someone that you have a particular reaction to, would you say hone it a little bit? Same stance. Okay, so you take the same stance, stance. yeah. No matter what, you know. Yeah, like I'm. This is my intention. Same stance. Now, it doesn't mean that the person sitting in front of me isn't challenging, or that I'm going to have to work. I may even have feelings of like, oh, I'm not so connected to this person. Uh, But that's on me to explore and understand, and to see if this. If how I'm responding is how other people respond, like what am I noticing within myself? And is this my thing that belongs to me and I need to look at it separately? Or is this being elicited um, by the client and they elicit it in many people? It's a pattern of behavior. So if I'm having a reaction in the therapeutic room, in the relationship, I want to understand it and conceptualize it rather than just back away like I don't like this person or something like that. Like, what is it? What's happening here? Yeah, that can be really useful information, especially if it is a pattern in the person's life and you're having a reaction yeah. to that person that hmm, maybe there's something here we need to take a look at. Yeah, I can hold it's happening here. It's probably happening. Yeah, I can hold that hypothesis and check it out and explore it with them mm-hmm. and see if, you know, if their behavior functions that same way in front of other people. And if so, then I can use that what's happening in the room to give direct and honest feedback or authentic feedback about what's going on and we can look, you know, use the processes to build something different mm-hmm. rather than to be sort of stuck in something painful. So you write about how it can sometimes be helpful to be willing to break some of the traditional rules of therapy, you know, the things you learn in those early classes in grad school about how therapy is supposed to be done. Can you give listeners an example of a time that you broke the rules of therapy to do something that's effective? Yeah, no, I I think that, you know, we have all kinds of rules about what therapy is supposed to look like. And like one of the rules that we have is your client should feel better when they leave the room. Um, you need to be a very good listener, uh, which are fine. They're good rules. Like I do think that um, they're good things to be doing and listening, I think is really powerful and important. And we should be doing a lot of that. 
but sometimes we follow that rule at the expense of really functionally working with the client. And so, for instance, today I broke the rule a bunch with a client earlier today where um, the client was telling me a story and I was listening to it. But then as the story went on, I, I just stopped and said, let's work here. And we let's look at what's happening inside of the story and what's going on for you in this moment. And some people might look at that and say, you didn't hear the rest of the story. You don't even know what's completely happening yet. Uh, or is your client going to feel invalidated because you broke in and just, you know, stop the client? Uh, and this is one thing I see therapists do a lot is they listen for a really long time. And then they miss opportunities to make an intervention because they're sort of following a rule about therapists or good listeners. Great rule, but it's also a rule that can be broken. And again, it depends on what it what is the purpose of what you're trying to do in the room. And if a client is caught inside of a long and detailed story and the intervention or the process or being able to do something that's going to be useful gets lost because you're now you've moved on like, you know, 10 minutes and you still haven't heard the rest of the story. Like it's time to get in there. And you can do that with thoughtfulness, awareness, compassion, and you can do it in a way that it doesn't feel like you're dismissing the client or not validating the client, which reminds me of another rule. Like some people learn, you always got to validate. Well, it depends. Like maybe somebody has been getting validation um, across a long period of time, or if they've had multiple therapists and the therapist validated, 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 but it didn't change the behavior. It didn't make a difference in the person's life in terms of how they were moving forward and expanding. And so, like, these rules are made to be broken in this sense. Is it actually making the change that you, that the client has brought to you and that the two of you are working on? That's a good example. Those stories sometimes can go on session after session. I've seen you do that a number of times, Robin, in trainings and role plays where you slow people down. You may be quiet down the story to take a look at other things that are happening. It's so powerful when that happens. And it just takes people right out of that sort of overly verbal way of being and more into their experience. Yeah, precisely. And I'm curious about your own verbal world while you're in a therapy session. If I could sort of implant myself into your mind and your thoughts during a therapy session, what would it be like in there? What's what's kind of happening for you as you're sitting with a client who's going into a story? Are you, how do you make, how do you navigate the act processes and your response to them when you're in a conversation with a client? Well, my hope is that the book kind of lets people into my head a little bit and how I'm thinking about things. Again, it's always hard to speak to experience with words, but I guess part of what you would you would see listening for sure, but I'm listening in two ways. And so one is sort of a present, I'm here, I'm with you, I'm looking people in the eye, I can hear, I can hear your words and understand and make sense of what you're saying. But I'm also listening for what is this about? It, what is the 
what is the purpose of the story? What's happening here? What are the layers underneath? And uh, when I can help, when I can see what's happening at both places, then I can either respond to just the words, the content, and be present and hear the story at that level, or I can respond to the process. What's happening in here between us? What's underneath the words? What's the emotional experience that's being missed if I don't slow them down? They're talking about something really painful, yet nothing's happening. And, you know, so like that's just an example of the kind of thing that I'm talking about. So I'm looking at body language. So you'd see, I guess if you could be in my head, you'd see me really focusing in on this person sitting across from me, listening for things like tone of voice, pace, presence, uh, way the way that they're looking at me and interacting with me. Um, what are, how are they moving? Uh, what am I hearing? And are things matching when they're talking or are they really far apart? And have they told this story over and over again? And is the story interfering? with? So it's just like all of these sort of layers of what's happening to me as well. Like what do I feel in the room in response to what the client is sharing with me? What do I notice about my own experience? And so it sounds like a lot. But it <laughs> so maybe it sounds kind it of messy lot. when you get in there. <laughs> it's a chaotic mess. <laughs> uh, but it really like I'm look. I really am listening at, at multiple levels, mm-hmm. and I'm using more than just my head. I'm using myself mm-hmm. in the room and sort of understanding what's happening for me emotionally, psychologically, mm-hmm. as well as being as present as possible to the client. This brought back a memory, Robin, of one of the most powerful things that happened in my internship year with a supervisor who noticed I was really listening on the content level and had me take one of my therapy videotapes. You know, we used to have to videotape everything in, in, during training and watch the whole session with the sound off. Yeah. So yeah. I would notice what was showing up. And I think before that, that didn't make any sense to me. But this idea that we're always, there's multiple levels happening at once. And if we get too caught in the words and the story, our own, the clients, yeah. that we miss some other layers. So yeah, you're right. There is a lot happening in the mind of Robin during a session. And, and they're all important. They're different sort of processes, which is a nice segue into my next question, which is about you know, ACT really is a process-based therapy. And we're getting, I think, more and more explicit about that as, as the field evolves. In the book, you write about several of the different levels of process that are happening, and, and you just mentioned some of them. Can you talk a little bit about some of the different processes that are at play when we're doing ACT? Yeah, so of course, there's the six core processes. And each of them are a process in and of themselves. Like, um, perspective taking isn't something that you do once and then you, you've done it and now you know how to do it. Like perspective taking is an ongoing thing that you're always doing or being in the moment or being willing. Like they're all in fluid and moving. And so implementing them should have a bit of a fluid quality, a movement kind of quality to it, not just a static once and done deal. 
Right. I did diffusion. Done. Done. (laughs) Exactly. So you've got those six core processes. And then I was, as I was mentioning earlier, you have the interpersonal process. So what's happening between you and the client and how is that moving in the session and across time? So is your relationship getting closer and more intimate? And are you seeing change of using the six core processes? Or is it moving far apart? How is the relationship moving? There's the intrapersonal process. What's moving through me across time? What am I feeling as the session moves forward and as I interact with this client again and again uh, in our therapy together? And then with both of those sort of tucked underneath, there's an overarching process. What, what is my case conceptualization? And how is that changing over the arc of the therapy? And so how do the interpersonal, intrapersonal, and six core processes feed in to that arc across time? And so there's, you know, I, I think of ourselves as beings in motion. And these things that we're doing in therapy are in motion. And so uh, as I'm looking at conceptualizing a case, I know it's going to change over time. And if I'm in session six and I'm conceptualizing the case, I'm also linking it to the place where the client has told me they want to land at the end of therapy. Like what's important to them? What are they trying to create here? And so whatever I'm doing across time in the session, interpersonally and interpersonally, it's linked to that over to that arc, uh, that change across time in the therapy. And so I think these, and then you tuck the six core processes inside of this. Now it might feel complicated, but the, if we go back to where we started with mastering, mastering, yes. <laughs> like the, these are the things that you can explore and attend to as you continue across time developing your work as an act therapist. Yes. Yes. And it is a process. The whole thing is a, it's a process for us and the therapeutic process. It's all happening over the, over the course of the work. Yeah. And it's a lifelong process in, in the case of our own yeah. process as therapists. It never, we never come to an end point of that. No, and I'll, I'll sometimes tell clients when, like in our termination session, like, you know, now is the time, now you're mm-hmm. beginning. This is the beginning session <laughs> of right. you sort of launching out into movement in the world. Yeah, that's right. I, I sometimes say that when I finish a consultation group I'm working with yeah. and we come to the last session, I say, this is really just the starting point. This is the starting point. It, right it may not feel like it right now because you've been through all kinds of <laughs> work over the last six months, but really this is where, where it begins. Yeah. Well, and I, I've really taken, and maybe you were going to ask a question about this, but I've really taken to this movement as a, as a pretty important piece of what's happening. And so I've been saying this life from the feet up. Yes. And what I mean by that is, you know, we can get so heady. It's almost, we, we live from the head down and I, want to encourage us from the feet up like life unfolds in what you're doing and in your feet not in what you're thinking and what's in your head I mean I'm not saying those are irrelevant but move your feet and bring your heart and mind along 
I love that. I love that idea. And I think as therapists, that's part of our process is to live our lives from the feet up. It's beautiful. Well, the therapeutic process and our growth process at Therapist never comes to an end point, but this interview does. And I want to end on a final piece about your book, because to me, one of the most powerful and moving parts was your chapter on existentialism and ACT. And there's a piece about how really one of the best gifts that we can give to our clients is putting them in touch with the fact that the clock is ticking and life is passing us all by. I just thought that was so beautiful and profound. And sometimes we don't want to think about that or it gets completely missed because we're focused on our problems. Why do you think that, why did you include that in your book? Why is this piece about awareness of death so important? Well, if I can, you know, I've read some terrific folks like Viktor Frankl and, you know, other existentialists who remind me uh, uh, deeply and sort of in a heartfelt way that life is really precious and uh, we will we will come to an end and it is not that knowledge that brings meaning and so the invitation for clients to see that you don't have forever to make a change um, it's really important. Like, let's get the meaning in the room. And how is, why is that created? And it's because time is running out. And so um, when a client says to me, I'm running out of time, I agree. I don't say, no, you've got lots of time. I say, yeah, it's the case. And um, I most recently looked at this, um, I, can't, I wish I, remember who told me this but to count the number of weeks that you have left in life if you're going to live to an average age it's an interesting thing like you know we typically think of we don't put ourselves that far out in the future but you know if you had a thousand five hundred weeks left in your life feet up feet up feet up and so uh, I want to convey to my clients in some way that Yes, it's painful, but it's also got lots of joy and love and opportunities for connection, but not another minute of, you know, sort of doubting and wondering and not taking risks. You know, and I mean that metaphorically, of course, it's not that easy. You can't just like always say not another minute and people go out and, you know, make gigantic change. But I want them to have a sense of that. Like, it isn't forever that I'm going to be able to live and make changes. And so I need to, you know, get my feet in line with my values today, now. There's a certain vitality that comes with remembering that. I think even as I'm listening to you talk, I'm noticing that, that feeling of, yes, life is happening here and now. And we need to kind of tap into that before it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Robin, it's been a real joy. I always love the opportunity to talk to you. And it's a great honor to talk to you about this book. I, I really feel your heart in it as I read it and as I'm talking to you today. And I think it's going to help my therapy be deeper and richer. And I think our listeners will feel the same way. 
So thank you for writing it and thank you for joining me. Oh, and thank you so much for inviting me. So of course, it's a pleasure to talk to you all the time, but it's really great to come and do the podcast. It's fantastic. Thank you. Repeat. Now we may need to have you on a fourth time. Oh, and I'd love to come back. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you, Robin. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com.